But before I go, I'm going to show you you're nothing even at your own game. I'm going to kick your ass. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. <laughs> How's it going? It's one fucking hour time. I am Evan Husney, and uh, of course, this is the show where we talk about one movie for one fucking hour. Of course, don't forget that. And we got Tom Fitzgerald in the house. What's going on, Tom? One fucking high. I don't know, but we got one fucking Marcus over here. What's going on, Marcus? Uh, Aloha. What's up, everybody? All right, that's the Great official movie. We should do yeah. Aloha. <laughs> oh my god, that would be insane. Um, all right, guys, well, are you ready for this episode forty? It's episode forty time. Oh, um, this is forty. This should is forty. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! That should be that's our that's our forty first one. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. Um, oh my god! All right, <laughs> episode forty, guys, is going to be on uh, the 40. film. <laughs> on the film Emma May from 1976. Uh, so here Emma we go. May. I'm looking forward. Wait, I'm, I'm looking for. I think we're going to get a lot of uh, a new audience from this because YouTube, the algorithm's going to hear us say the word MMA, like MMA so many times. Oh and it's going to think like, oh, oh, this is an MMA video. <laughs> like yeah. Joe Rogan's suggestion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. We'll have like, you know, uh, I don't know ads for different like you know body products that oh help you protein you know, protein shakes yeah yes um <laughs> all right so that'd be great to insert right here all right it's so episode 40 fuck that shit emma may 1976 here we go emma may i'm gonna say it like that um yeah, all right and i'm se- gonna separate it out separate that shit out all right so <laughs> i'm gonna start that clock and uh here comes that clock one fucking hour here we go all right, everybody. A <laughs> uh, little background on the film before we uh, get started here. Um, Emma May is the 1976 <laughs> film from renegade filmmaker Jama Fanaka, one of the key figures of UCLA's L.A. Rebellion movement, something I'm sure we'll talk more about in the hour. Uh, the film is a portrait of a spitfire teenager finding her bearings in Compton after leaving her home in rural Mississippi. While grappling with the culture shocks of the big city, Emma May falls deeply into the throes of teenage heartache, resorting to a reckless bank heist to avenge her man, all while fearlessly standing up against the racist powers that be and ultimately finding sisterhood in her community. So that is the movie, guys. Uh, I've said before on the show, I think teeing up to this episode, uh, I, I, I think the world of this movie... I saw it for the first time about, I think think it was about a year ago, a year or two ago for the first time. And it just felt like such a gem, super amazing discovery movie. It's like, it's got everything and it's super powerful, even though it's, you know, it's this kind of crudish, low budget movie, but it packs such a punch and the performances are so amazing. It looks amazing. It's, uh, it's actually a little bit of a tough movie to see. You can catch it on YouTube. Uh, you can kind of pirate it on YouTube. But of course, I think the best way to see this movie is definitely uh, this Blu-ray edition here. It's absolutely amazing. The quality is incredible. It's the right way to see it. Don't see it on YouTube. But anyway, let's start this thing off because, Tom, I know you have um, a little bit of a background with this movie. Uh, you know, you're a big Ajama Fanaka fan and also, and, and also you're into the L.A. Rebellion stuff. So tell, tell us a little bit about yeah. your history with uh, his him and his work. Well, so, uh, you know, I was self-educating in my early 20s about film, you know, and I would literally do things like go to the library. <laughs> you know, this is a long time ago. And so one thing I picked up on that I really got, I thought was um, I couldn't see any of this stuff, but I thought it would be an interesting lead to go down was third world cinema and specifically like Cinema Nouveau. You know, check that out for further reading. And then I started thinking uh, almost literally where I saw Sweetback around that time. And I started thinking, I don't know if anybody else made the connection, but because of sort of the African diaspora, I felt that like um, the ghetto life in America is its own kind of third world. 
And these were expressions within the third world. And I was thinking about how revolutionary cinematically and in message Sweetback was specifically, you know. Right, um, right, right, right. The, uh, the Melvin Van Peebles film. So I got mm-hmm. really sprung. And that was my favorite film for like many years. It's still wow. one of my favorites. But I was just trying to like hit that nerve. So my point is, I was looking around and I started hearing about, uh, I saw an ad flyer in some zine of Welcome Home Brother Charles. And the review was like, oh boy, you have no idea. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. This movie's crazy. That movie's crazy. But the end of this movie, and I was like, I got to see this. So then it finally, again, this was a million years ago and it like took me forever. And I realized that there was a VHS of Welcome Home Brother Charles. And it was called, um, oh my God, I'm spacing the name, uh, Soul Vengeance. And so I had to dig up Soul Vengeance from a local video store, but I watched it and I was really enthralled because it was clearly 16 and it was clearly my favorite thing in the world, which is like a, a thesis <laughs> film that was blown up and shown in drive-ins. I'm like, he stole my heart, you know, so Soul Vengeance. And so, and the ending is stunning. Can you give the people just a quick little synopsis of what Welcome Home, Brother Charles, uh, which is Jama Fanaka's yeah. first full feature film. W- like feature, what that's yeah. about? Like what's the pitch of that movie? <laughs> I don't want to spoil. I actually really don't want to spoil the ending. Okay, but I, don't I spoil don't the ending. Yeah, well, okay. It's like, uh, well, anyway. So, um, you know, he gets busted. He's like a low-level criminal in Watts. It's a very Watts world, this film. And this guy just gets mixed up, you know, and he gets busted. And the sadistic cops huge racists and they like uh they mutilate his genitals maybe not to the point of uh you know like castration but right pretty right. close and it's really a nightmare scene to watch and he's in the back of the police car and so then there's some kind of mystical connection that he makes where he hears the drums of home and he looks at a spinning uh statue of home of africa and he inside him almost like a superhero he conjures like this um, this force that allows him to take revenge upon the cops, the cops' wives, and the whole, you know, white kind of pig, quote unquote, society. Um, and he does it in this really incredible, abstract, mystical, fantastical way. But again, this film is gritty 16 millimeter right. shot with like friends and students, you know, in, in the mean streets of, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, South LA. So just that combination, I was, Lord. but the whole film is interesting but the ending don't want to spoil it it's quite quite an ending if so, i can please. sorry just real just real quick before you get into la rebellion because I, I think it's really yeah. interesting just for the folks at home and everything and marcus if you want to throw down on this too but i think it's really interesting that people should know too that if you're not familiar with uh you know jama fanaka's movies you know <clears throat> his first three features welcome home brother charles this movie emma may and uh, Penitentiary are all ostensibly student films. He's at yeah. UCLA in the film program, in the master's program, but he's cranking these movies out. He's raising financing through grants, uh, getting student uh, grants, uh, getting money from his parents, doing whatever he can to bootstrap these productions to get them out. Obviously, Penitentiary. Uh, AFI was a big supporter, you know, like the way they kind of supported David Lynch. Right. Actually, right in the yeah. 70s. It was AFI, but then he also got a nice fat NEA. You know, when like the federal government was cool and not all like, you know, cracker Republican, you know, a pushback on that stuff. So uh, he basically scraped it together and um, yeah, had three features in a row that wound up, you know, getting distributed, you know, playing grindhouses and, and drive ins. Penitentiary, rated R. It's so amazing. And like, I mean, how many student films come out every year? You know, I mean, maybe less back then, but then I think there's still. A fair amount. And it's like for Jama, he saw like, or Jamal, he saw like uh, an opportunity to like actually make a real movie, you know, instead of just some mm-hmm. half realized student film. It doesn't all oh, in. Yeah. Feel you know they feel rough at times, but but I don't think it may feels more rough than any other film. MMA is the least of the three. MMA is yeah. pretty polished, you know. So yeah. we get that. So just if you just want me to wrap it up, just very quickly to give it a lar- the largest context is like. I was into third world cinema. I kind of had my own stupid self thesis walking around, you know, in the early nineties about like the, the ghetto America had its own and that was sweet back. I'm just doing recommended stuff. There's other, but what I'm saying is my point in just elaborating for a second on all this is I realized that LA was really the heart of this. New York, uh, always other than Superfly, New York, but even that one always had some studio backing, you know, of course with Shaft and like, Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
Charleston Blue or Welcome Home, uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem, that kind of thing, you know, and uh, and Hollywood certainly had its own Hollywood stuff like Trouble Man was produced by like, you know, exploitation theaters. But the indie L.A. was what really captured my interest. There's this movie called Speeding Up Time. Nobody knows that. The Bus is Coming is very obscure, but very cool. And then you've got, uh, but what's happening in tandem, I didn't realize it then, but I'd learned about, uh, yes, the, what's called the LA Rebellion. And the LA Rebellion was at UCLA, late 60s into the 70s. Uh, Fanaka was a member of this scene. And it was because of um, the very beginnings of affirmative action, uh, you know, black film students got a chance to actually go to a prestigious film school. UCLA is a big deal. I mean, who's also UCLA? So like Lucas, right? George oh, Lucas. Yeah. Say again. Uh, well, that's yeah, USC, George, right? George Lucas is USC. Uh, yeah, USC. Oh, okay, I got that wrong. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Uh, I think anyway. Coppola went to UCLA. Okay. Right? And like, yeah. yeah. So, so there was so, so this was the scene, um, and there was uh, my favorite guy, other than um, other than uh, of course Fanaka was this guy, uh, uh, Holly Jarima, I think, who was an Ethiopian uh, refugee who went. He made wild short films. I'm going somewhere with this. He made wild short films that were very uh, strident and very uncompromising and had zero. There was more like it was Godard. It was like 70s Godard. And they're awesome movies. There was also Charles Burnett, who made um, Bless, the, Bless Their Little Hearts and um, Killer Killer Sheep. Sheep. Awesome filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And um, but then there's all. But then what's funny is that Fanaka happens. And because it's the 70s, there is that strident kind of super anti Hollywood. They were all anti Hollywood and much more quote unquote Godard, RIP. But the thing is, it, also Fanaka too, was like not trying to break, what I'm saying, at least not, none of them were trying to break into like mainstream films. They weren't trying to do like, you know, Chinatown kind of stuff. But Fanaka, because he did try to make films that would be seen by people, uh, actually was considered, I wouldn't say a sellout, but he was derided somewhat by that school that he was in, that um, yeah. scene at UCLA. So it's kind of ironic because his stuff is, I wouldn't say incredibly commercial, especially like Brother Charles, but at the time, the relativity of it was that he had like things like narratives, you know, right? and, he, and exploitable well, elements. <clears throat> yeah, he, he, he really wanted to, <clears throat> he, well, he didn't want to make like strictly art films like a lot of his contemporaries were, you know, he wanted to right. kind of subvert what was going on, you know, in other genres and implore other genres and get and add those elements into his movie and kind of have a nice balancing act between something that had a lot of raw humanism in it, that had a lot of, you know, humor in it too. I mean, his movies all have that. And as well. surrealism. And he surrealism. Did it all. He did it all. Like yeah. he had hardcore art he had hardcore art house moves. Yeah. You're right. He had like great humanistic naturalism. Naturalism. Especially yeah. with this film, Emma yeah. May. Yep. And uh and and also there's some quote unquote exploitable elements too in his film. So I feel like he did it all. And it's mm-hmm. very fully realized. You know what I mean? I don't think that he I don't think you could peg him as being just like a guy who was trying to crank out some drive in movies in the mid seventies. No, not at all. And and just to put a cap on this before we move on too, is just talking yeah, really yeah. quickly with with penitentiary too. It's the idea that, oh. you know, what you're saying, Marcus, is that very unprecedented you know, for uh, anyone to make three films that be commercially released while you're still a student, and with the third of which being Penitentiary, uh, made for six hundred grand, I think, but it went on to gross thirty-two million dollars worldwide. So huge Shit. success, huge, huge yeah. success. But prior to that, uh, he's doing Emma, Emma May. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try not to. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> um, and this movie, obviously, to me. Uh, just has so much going on for it, and it's so it's so rewarding. It's such a gem, and I I thought maybe we could start by just sort of talking about how we're introduced to the character because I think it's pretty interesting in this movie. Because um, you know, as I said in, in the synopsis, you know, it's basically this fish out of water story where, um, where the character of Emma May, played by Jerry uh, Hayes, who's incredible in this movie, it's like in it's a yeah. tour de force performance. Yeah. Um, the only film I believe, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think she was, uh, Marcus, she was a a theater student, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess. uh, Yeah, she was a theater student, and all the theater students acted in all the, uh, you know, all the film students' films. And she really was from Alabama, and so she had that kind of Southern thing. And I think that, um, you know, what she said was that Jamal based it off of his his own cousin, 
who came to LA and had right. that sort of similar kind of a culture shock experience being from the South and then, you know, being from, being a country girl yeah. and coming I've to the big city. I've got the name here. And, his, and, his real cousin, her name was Daisy Lee. Oh, wow. so that's even more Southern sounding than MMA. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. It right. is. Yeah, that's that Southern convention. The, the, the two names stuck together. Yeah. Daisy yeah. Lee. Daisy Lee. Um, so, yeah. And then ahead. her so, mom. Did, oh, should I go ahead? Or? Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, her mom. I guess her mom died. Yeah, her, her, she had a similar story to the character, too. Like her mom died when she was young. Um, there's like a, a painting on the wall and, and, and yeah. uh, of her mom is actually her own mother, you know. Oh, um, shit. Wow. I love that. Uh, wow. And then I guess like, uh, you know, I mean, if we're just going to talk about Jerry for a second, she, I guess she talked about how she contributed a lot to the film, like, you know, as a, uh, you know, like giving her, basically directing herself or like having control over how she was, her character was presented. Her dialogue, more than the dialogue? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess like, yes, she said that, I mean, there's like an interview of her online and she talks about this stuff or, you know, she says like, you know, that Jamal, his filmmaking style, he would let everyone come in and like, contribute a lot to the movie to make you know to bring their own point of view and their own creativity to the role so she like felt like she directed herself and in the film you know and she even wrote some like uh some she even wrote some of the dialogue like she wrote the monologue in the film like where she is uh 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 you know the monologue where she's like where she's talking about like if you know my mama said to me if you're gonna do something you need to like tell everybody explain why and if not you just need to go out there do it or else you'll never be fulfilled you know yeah. like she yeah. wrote that uh, that passage and stuff wow so that's cool she's pretty interesting awesome. um but she has yeah, a real naturalism yeah. that she brings to that role you know and like i guess that's kind of what she brings like this naturalism and authenticity you know oh yeah and she's got the right look for that character you know but it is it is interesting like you know she's she looks great on film. She's not like a classical beauty or anything, you know. She's not like, she's not super tall or like, you know. Just in contrast to someone like Pam Greer or something, you know. I think yeah. it's like there's. I think you know there's just a lot of cues when you start watching the film that this is going to be different than yeah. like. Oh yeah, uh, and he's the, big into that. How a normal yeah uh, ex- he's, uh, exploitation film might go. He's he's very aware of especially by seventy six, you know. Uh, of taking the black exploitation genre, subverting kind of what that is, or what the expectations of that would be, and and we'll get more you know, into that, that. that. And that was really the late. I mean, really, if you think of the trajectory, this is coming. Yeah. Either, yeah. Even Brother Charles, it's like um, things are really winding. washing out pretty yeah, fast, winding yeah, totally. down yeah. into like pure genre crap, yeah. or uh, mutating a little bit, you know, into like yeah. you know stir crazy eventually, you know, that right. Kind of thing. <laughs> right, right, you know what I mean. Like, well, let's uh, get... so he did, he was there. He was really the king of latter era exploitation, I would say. And he made it his own. Totally. hundred percent. Uh, going back just real quick to that, that scene where we're introduced to her for the first time and kind of sets the stage for the movie because, you know, so she's a transplant, you know, from the South, she's coming into the big city. She's meeting her family. Her, her, her mom has died. That's the character, as we said, also mirrors real life. And she uh, appears to be meek. You know, she kind of gives this kind of quality off when she's like, when she walks off the bus and everybody first meets her for the first time. People are making fun of her and they look at her, the way she's dressed, the way she looks. And then there's this amazing scene right off the bat where this movie starts to shift into high gear. Because when we get into this party scene where she meets this character, Zeke, who's talking trash about her immediately, then all of a sudden she stands up and fucking decks the yeah. shit out of him. She throws some haymakers. Yeah. You know? And instantly becomes Alabama a legend. slammers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's incredible. It's it's just amazing to watch that because the movie just yeah, awesome. comes to life in that moment where you're like, oh wow, this is not well all what I expected you know, out of this character, you know, and, and I think that is kind of a interesting choice, you know, to, it takes a hard, u, like you turn into what your perception of this character is and then who she kind of proves herself to be in that moment. And then Can we uh, talk about the party itself too. Maybe that party this, or the second party, which party, the first party, you know, okay, what you're saying. Go sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's just, um, what hit me was, you know, I've watched a million, maybe we all have, um, movies that are kind of more taking uh, mid 70s films, California life of teenagers, high school, 
you know, and they're like Malibu High or Super Van. It's a favorite of mine. You know, we've seen a lot of these films or Van, Van Nuys Boulevard. And it's just funny because it's happening at the same time. MMA is. And um, and it's like the black experience of like, um, hey, we're all in high school. We're going to a party on Friday and right. doing this doing that. And there's this person. And I want to hook up with this person. I hate that person. And like, you know, fist fights and making out and stuff. And I was thinking uh, there's just that great naturalism. And what I mean is. It's it's as down to earth and realistic as a lot of the better seventies teen films can be. Totally. But of course they're depicting a white experience, you know. Right. And it's just such a rare thing because right. it's uh, it's playing out like like it's what I'm saying is it's I'm trying to articulate it's not life in high school necessarily more than just like uh your average teenager mm-hmm. instead of like this thing where it's like, you know, like what is it, dangerous minds and like you know, like there's <laughs> dangerous. Like money. there are gangs, and there is conflict, and there's like some drug dealing and stuff in in the in the MMA world of that party. But it's more it's it's frontlined by like it is just kids having fun. You know what I mean? And like being yeah. crazy and screwing up and wanting things and not liking things. And it's not as as loaded as like this big message scene of like that's really contrived and archetypal of like right. you know uh, a struggle and like you know it's just it plays out like. These are people first, and it's very humanizing. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a testament to Fanaka that it's it's not he's not jumping through the hoops of all kinds of tropes, you know, from mm-hmm. like uh, social progress tropes to um, exploitation tropes. And he just like lands in the middle of just like, hey, these are people, and I know them, and they live like this, and they're up the street, and um, and you could transplant a scene like that, and it could be in a Hispanic communities party or like a South Asian immigrant, you know, it's like, or, or even a white mm-hmm. one, it's well, interchangeable somewhat. So I, I, I found that very unique and refreshing. You know what I mean? I lo- yeah, no, totally. I love his point of view. And there's, there are, there's a great snapshot of the era in there too. Like of, you yes. know, just like superficially, you see like uh, the clothes obviously are incredible. Literally. You love the that clothes. opening party scene, you know, there's like the pop and lockers dancing, you know, like there's like, Awesome. So you see this like brief moment of like that captured on film as a uh, a little phenomenon. So yeah, I do love that he doesn't. Uh, you know, the, the you get a snapshot of like the black experience '76. You know, yeah, uh, and then you also get. Uh, but but like Tom says, he doesn't rely on cliches. There are those things sprinkled out, like you said, but like it, it really keeps the movie fresh all the way through like you don't really know where it's all heading you know and i think like a lot of those in this era by 15 minutes through the tropes have already signified yeah. where this is all going you Holy, know exactly. and this movie it's like i just i don't know like when i'm watching it you know even this time watching it again fresh i wasn't even sure like where it's all where it was all headed right know? well if i've seen it say, in like that, a long time no that's well said that's a testament to him i agree with you it's like like what kind of shape is this movie because usually everyone sadly can go oh it's gonna go one two three four five you know and that's boring you know but he's he keeps you guessing but uh before we get too far from what you were saying tom i also wanted to to throw this in you know uh when when ramey and i rewatched it you know recently and we said it even the first time we saw it um is that there's something about this movie and and it shouldn't be it shouldn't feel this rare you know it's it's sad that it's this rare to see a, a film this authentic as you were saying to the black experience of just people hanging out you know and partying and you know hanging out and stuff but it does feel like a proto dazed and confused or something like it feels that's what i'm saying yeah yeah it feels like yeah it feels like you know obviously with the party scenes the driving scenes you know it sort of has that 70s coming of age style that would become more right. prevalent later on but it's kind of even forecasting that which yeah. i think is really cool and um and so basically at, so out of that just to put a bow on this great scene in the movie is um Obviously, you know, um, Emma May takes matters into her hands, matters into her own hands. She beats the hell out of Zeke. Um, and then she winds up becoming an item with Zeke's friend, Jesse. And, and that leads us to this kind of budding romance with that's obviously going to be ill-fated. But it leads us to this other party scene. Uh, I know, a total understatement of the century there. But there's this other party scene that's amazing. And one thing I just wanted to, if we're going from party scene to party scene, I love yeah. how we're able to just 
you know, live in these moments and get these really naturalistic vibes with these scenes. But there's one shot I just want to call out. I don't know if you guys would remember it, but there's one shot that I love. I'm going to cut to it here when I do the edit. But there's this amazing moment in the film. I think it's the first handheld shot in the movie. And it's just like everything's been pretty much on sticks the whole time. And then it kicks into this beautiful handheld shot when Jesse and Emma May are dancing. And it's just, it picks up and it's just this beautiful handheld. And it just, man, it feels way ahead of its time. I just got to show that. that. Yeah. Well, you'll see it in the episode. Okay. That's cool. Cut to it. If I can, I want to put a little button on this, this general topic we're talking about now about, um, Mm. you know, tribute to his approach to, uh, you know, depicting lives lived is I I have a comparison in my mind. It's actually the Chicano community, as it would have been called in 1979, in that awful movie, Walk Proud. That's the I movie. It's very infamous. Okay. Robbie Benson, of course, the cute little Jewish kid, uh, gets brown contact lenses and portrays a, a Chicano gang member, which is unbelievable on paper, but <laughs> on film, it's awful. So it's an awful film, and it has all those tropes that I'm talking about, you know, that Hollywoodism where it's like no one's real. Everyone's talking in, um, you know, like uh, you know, abstract long like like the way no one talks or at reacts with each other it's all like it's like a bad west side story he starts dating a white girl from the rich high school you know and it's just like so further reading walk proud around that time same southern california subculture world and it's just so phony and again it just makes mma distinguish itself by the refreshing qualities that we were talking about so that i think is a perfect example of what i was getting at you know totally and, uh, Totally. Um, it's tiny, tiny thing. Marcus was saying like the uh, snapshot of a time and place. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, whatever the weird pills they take, they're called fender benders. Fender benders. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't have known that if this movie didn't. <laughs> and I love <laughs> that. Not term. the red, be- red devils. Is that what they were taking? I don't they know. Said, but yeah. They're just calling I, them fender benders. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I saw them later, later, at least the ones they're taking later on are like red devils. And I looked it up and it was like a uh, second all, which I guess. Oh, a barbiturate kind of yeah. thing, but I guess I was looking it up. I was like, cause it's one of those things like where, uh, like that quaaludes never existed, like in my lifetime, you know, like, I don't know. People were taking second all in my lifetime, I guess, but, um, I guess it's like been replaced by like, you know, uh, uh, you know, value. Oh, yeah. like, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. right. Well, every, everything's that, kind of, that, that yeah. kind of thing. But uh, no, anyway, just fender benders, just that it's like, you're saying that, and I'm a hundred percent certain that that wasn't in the script or anything like it wasn't like uh, made up by the film. It was just like, again, perfect way to say it. It was a snapshot. It was just a freeze frame of 1976 South L.A. It's awesome. It's, it feels great to do a movie that's like in L.A. Again, I, don't, I mean, I can't remember the last few we've done, but it feels like we're in New York a lot. And every time yeah. we're in L.A., I'm just like, oh, boy, here we go. You know, <laughs> we, we went really crazy with like, remember my name, for instance. And actually, yeah. I'm, here's Tom's habitual thing. Uh, I was, you know, born and raised in Long Beach till I was 10. And I'm telling you, Long Beach is very poor and working class, like San Pedro. But uh, I really lived like down the road from the world of MMA. <laughs> you right. know, it's very incredibly 100% like the way streets looked and like, um, you know, mm. like belly dancing at the bus stop kind of vibes. <laughs> well, know? all this. Oh, I got something on that later but um in some ways the the landscape hasn't changed in some ways but the cars are different you know but then like you look at the the building it just looks like la still even though all the cars and the the clothes are different but you still see the uh the the buildings and the hardly any residential street hardly any residential residential street like that has gotten any kind of overhaul at all yeah right and and Well, just like one thing I, I love about this movie, and it kind of goes to everything we've been talking about, obviously, is the authenticity. You know, when you have a movie like this that's so low budget, low to the ground, made in a very renegade style, you know, where you're probably shooting it over a very long period of time, you got to get a big team of people together to really, you know, have faith in the project to, to, to you know, get it across the finish line. It's like you can't get a movie this authentic, you know, if you're going through the studio sort of system and the whole, you know, that sort of thing. So there is something about like with this experience that, 
you know, or 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 with this movie in terms of getting you know just pure authentic authenticity coming through the screen at you know every well, freaking scene. Did we want to talk about um, just to keep going on uh, how it was his sort of his one of his college thesis films in that um, in especially the first two films with MMA specifically uh, the crew behind this, this the, the camera that's just fellow students, right? You know right. what I mean? And I'm sure like no one got paid. I'm sure it was not union or anything. And you know, the same thing with Sweetback. I mean, Sweetback was a renegade film. There's no union anything. It was, I think, pretty much a volunteer-based scene of people who wanted to learn how to do script supervision and, you know, like uh, we're in the clapboard. And it was just, it was like, let's all get together. And actually, it, I, I, I hope I don't get this wrong, but Jama Fanaka was born with, you know, an, 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 his, you know, government name, as they call it. And it was, I forgot yeah. what it is. And uh, but it, but he called himself Jama Fanaka when he was in film school, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I, I, it's Swahili, and it's something like "Together we shall all uh, uh, rise, together we shall all uh, flourish," you know. And that's what his name means. So I think that it's one of those beautiful things where this film, his early films, were all born of a community of people. Oh yeah, and and I'm glad you said and that. Believed in him, yeah. Who worked and I'm, believed in him. I'm really glad you said that. His, uh, his birth name was Walter Gordon. Um, is what, okay, Walter, is what Gordon. Was Walter Gordon, but he, uh, yeah, I'm glad you said the word community too, because I think that's a huge part of it. You know, I think a lot of his movies, or this movie in particular too, you know, is about the community, right? This whole movie is yeah. about the community of Compton. Yeah. And one thing, uh, again, another scene I love in this movie that you just wouldn't see in any other commercial, more commercially driven work, you know, is <clears throat> this amazing sequence of just people hanging out and doing and, and doing each other's hair, you know, or or, or the yeah. character of Daisy, who's the hairdresser. And that scene is so amazing. And, and I absolutely love that. Like and that that because I because I know that what was important to him in terms of why he didn't like the tropes of typical black exploitation films is because they didn't leave room to explore the the themes of family and community and those types of things right it was all about the things that were you know plaguing the community and all the negative aspects and the traps and right. the things like that you know right. and so even though those themes are prevalent in his works still but it but he wanted to leave room for the community you know and 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 things like that and so i think the the character of daisy um who's doing the uh you know who's the hairdresser is just a, a an amazing i just i just love that scene. i just love hanging out with them for whatever it is five minutes or yeah no totally and well you know um the film uh has different tones and different uh feels and it's very richly populated you know like we're saying and i think that one of the scenes that struck me was like the morning after the big party scenes and um you come into like a low-income pantry and people are just talking the way like, oh, I don't know, they talk the people in like the quote unquote working class, you know, uh, they talk about like, well, my boss sucks or like uh, this or that and everything. And they're just like real people and they have bonds and friendships and family and they care about each other and they have bad times and good times. And it just uh, he lets it ride like it lets the camera roll and lets a room full of specifically in this scene in the kitchen uh, of uh, somewhat like middle aged uh, black women. Yeah. Just talking about, you know, a, a moment in time, like their Saturday morning. You know what I mean? Right. And as, I remember taking a step back. I was like, wow, this is stunning. Like this didn't happen then hardly. I think the closest thing to be fair yeah. would be a film like Claudine, if you're familiar with that. I have not seen it. 1974. Yeah. And it's um, it's a big Hollywood film and it is doing sort of like a, a, a more Hollywood version of like um, raising a bunch of kids in the ghetto kind of thing. And uh it, it it rings a little bit corny, but uh, that's the magic of Jama. Like, like corny is not him. And no. Like I, I guess I'm repeating myself, but he, there's two traps he could have taken. And in this scene is an example of how he didn't follow either, where it's like, like um, aggressive, agenda ridden, and like uh, you know, like um, you know, like it's like uh, it's hopeless plight, and it's humorless. And I'm going somewhere with this, or just like caricature, ridiculous unreal and you know we all love pam greer but it's like that's a comic book exactly it's a comic book right and this is just not now one thing i was to say is humor i i noticed something brother charles doesn't have that much humor it has a few moments but actually penitentiary i remember when i saw it with my friend for the first time i think we were on lsd by the way 
<laughs> okay. It's on cable. We were coming down and uh, I was like, oh, what the fuck is this? And, um, you know, and uh, we found it was so fun and funny. Penitentiary. It is. Like, there's yeah. a lot of really wild characters. And Definitely. the thing is, there's some, there's some really great oddball, funny characters in MMA as well. 100%. Like, you know, like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like, those guys who are like, like gross and eating fish. Well, I was going to talk about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, you know, every time I hitchhike, I always make sure to be eating like crab. <laughs> well, that's that's like who? What's yeah, up with those guys? That's, you know, so well, well that's, I love that. That's the. I mean, that that's Zeke and Jesse. You know, who are who are right. munching on you know the crabs in the back seat, and then it's like, man, you eating the shit you know out of the crap or whatever you know and yep, it's like it. yeah yeah and it's like it's i mean that's a funny scene i i love that scene and i um yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's the, and this movie has in, tons of incredible you know quotable lines from it as yeah. well too i mean you know uh oh my god there's so many so many things i want to get into to respond to that um but i think just to close the loop on what we were talking about just so we can get out of the naturalism versus sort of the tropes thing is yeah. you know he said his films were anti-black exploitation that's what he called them and you know if you look at them they don't have the surface level exploitation of women there isn't really nudity at all in them and a lot of the black exploitation films do um yeah. also it's interesting in terms of how he treats white characters in the movie as well too is that he doesn't you know use stereotypes of them either it's not like in the indi- mm. like in like an individual white person is the problem you know in his films it's more about the the overall system you know and like here's yeah, how the yeah. system is oppressive as, as represented by like the car wash owner oh you know exactly. who's somewhat complex like he is for instance sympathetic right and uh but he, it's almost like you know and i actually you know lean this direction about looking at how life is is um a guy like that is still just more or less working class he's not like a millionaire like the car wash owner and right. he's getting fucking squeezed by somebody else above him you know what i mean and he but he knows that he's a higher up than mma and her friends so he's right. squeezing down and yeah. just everyone's trapped in this shitty system you know and that's a good point yeah can, can we set that scene up just real quick if marcus unless you wanted to throw something on that i was just gonna just reiterate that scene what that is um I'll go for it okay yeah just just if you're following along because it's a pretty pivotal moment in the movie uh basically the relationship between um mma and uh jesse uh kind of comes to a halt when he when jesse is arrested after beating up you know he, he he beats up a few cops him and his buddy get sent away to prison she immediately tries to raise money to get them out of prison and then the way that they uh go about doing it she rallies everybody together to do this by the way and let's get this car wash going and make it profitable. And it's amazing. And they're doing everything. And they're really turning this place around. And, and then, and of guess course, what? it's a community that's volunteering towards a goal. Exactly. Not unlike his crew. Exactly. And that's what's going on, which is beautiful. It's a beautiful whole section of the film. Right. And then, of course, this asshole shows up. And, and of course, uh, the, the, the L.A. police are threatened by these, uh, this community of black people making money and, and doing, you know, and, and they're completely threatened by that. So they shut it down. Outside of the system. Outside of the system. And then Emma May's character delivers an a great monologue following this when, when she's told that they have to shut down the entire place. And she says, I don't understand. They've always talked about how us young people use dope and try to kill each other in the street. Then when we try to do yeah. something the way it's supposed to be done, they mess with us and try and shut it down. And that's yeah. one of the big sort of message moments of the movie there. And that leads her, of course, down that path of crime where they're going to eventually work outside of the system uh, and pull off a, a giant bank out heist, of, which is out of frustration and bitterness. Right, like there's right. a correlate, there's a causation. Yes, you know that's happening, and so like uh, I wouldn't say the word justified, but it is understandable no. that yeah. they would just be like, all right, well, forget it, like because it is, it's all a game. Yeah, and if you're not allowed to play in this stupid game, well, then you're like, well, then I won't play the game, <laughs> you know. So like, uh, fuck yeah. you, and I'll play on the uh, on the outside of your game and dip in and cheat. Because I think you guys are all cheating. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a 70s cynicism that's broad, you know, it's in society. Um, but I think that it's justified, you know what I mean? Um, and because there was a, America had a big revelation. This is like post-Watergate stuff, you know? Totally. Marcus, you I, had something on that? I, uh, yeah, I just think in general, I, I was just, there's so much that's been uh, mentioned, but I, I really like the way that 
MMA is used as like sort of the um, uh, like the messenger in the film. And like I read that he calls his films moving pictures because I don't know when he started doing that, but the, he he wanted to move people mm. with you know with the work and and move them in the right direction. And it feels like that. Uh, I like that she is someone. She's an outsider who comes into the community. And like she's telling people, she's noticing like the things that aren't working or the things that are right. holding people back. And she's, you know, I don't know, you know, she, she communicates that to the to people. She's used, you know, she's, I don't know, it's not, she's holding up the mirror to the community to be like, this is a problem, but like we can like, you know, she's find a, a way, to, uh, find a, a better fresh take because of her uh, outsider perspective. And everyone else is just kind of like, isn't this the way it is? <laughs> you know, and they take it for granted. Right. That it's kind of a raw deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. yeah so, oh, sorry, good. Anyway, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, I, I think like, you know, too, when she is trying to get everybody together to do the, it's another great comedic moment in the movie when she tries to get everybody to rally together to, you know, work at the car wash and she's like, all right, we're going to wash some cars. We're going to do this. We're going to get this going. And then there's somebody who's like, I ain't washing any cars. No fucking way. You're going to mm-hmm. get me washing cars. And then it's just this right. amazing comedic timing moment of, of, of MMA coming down off the standing on whatever she's on and comes down yeah. right up to this woman and just punches her in the face. And it's I amazing. Amazing little comedic moment there. And then, and of you course, said, like, you know, it's coming. You're like three, yeah. two, one. <laughs> yeah. You know. yeah, 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 totally. I it love happens that. a couple times. It she does just, like yeah. three times, yeah. Just, yeah. just like, clowns fools when she's like yeah. at it, because I guess that's how she was bred. You know, it's just like, yeah, like, uh, you know, we're not talking this out. We're gonna punch it. Right. Out. And I well, say it's, like, it's the example that she's that she can handle herself in this world. You know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love that too. And one yeah. thing we should just say about the bank heist, if we can just because we brought that up, let's just talk about that really quickly too, because it correlates too also with what we were talking about. You know, again, he's making these movies that are incredibly authentic and naturalistic. And I did mention anti-black exploitation, but he also does, you know, Jama also uses these sort of, you know, genre tropes. Uh, you know, he 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 implements them like a heist, for example, in this movie to give it more commercial appeal because he wants people to see these movies and he wants them yeah. to to have you know more more viewership or marketing or whatever, which I think is kind of brilliant, you know, to to inject yeah. that into a movie like this. So what you kind of perk up when you understand that this movie is taking the direction of a bank heist movie, you know, which kind of throws it in a totally different gear, which which I love, and that's sort of precipitated by this one character. We got to spend a second or two talking about big daddy you know who's an amazing character in this movie um i can't remember the actor's name right now off the top of my head but he gives this amazing monologue in the film that is kind of the one unifying motivational promo (laughs) wrestling promo to get everybody just to 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 pull this off and it's amazing and and that's and that's when he talks about my favorite line in the film which is uh where big daddy says uh I mumble to forget. Y'all always jiving with me about my mumbling. See, what you don't know is I mumble to forget. That's right. When I mumble, I forget that I'm ashamed to be as old as I am and still walking around. Which is my one of my favorite lines. Yeah, what's up with that? I <laughs> yeah, I mumble. <laughs> yeah, I mumble I wonder to forget. If, if that, I wonder if that actor was given a long leash and allowed by... Uh, um, Fanaka, the same way that she was. I wonder if he was like, you know, like doing some of his own writing for his monologue. I don't know. Because it's, I I didn't know that he let the actors kind of um, find their character. I wouldn't be surprised. One thing I do know about how we approach directing actors, which is fucking brilliant and. If uh, anybody out there is making a movie, if you can do this, I, I highly uh, recommend it because it's 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 obvious, but it's a tool people don't have the luxury to use anymore. Which is, you know, it does. You know, he would he would talk about how he would get his cast together super early, well before he had any money to do it, and he was able to get his actors to rehearse over and over and over again, even when they didn't have money to shoot anything. So he kept going over the script and kept improving it, and then having the actors and the characters. That's great getting to a point where they knew their characters more than anything. So by the time they filmed it, they were those people. And he said, he said it was a great technique because 
because you know film is expensive he said quote film is expensive but rehearsals don't cost nothing you know and so gotta love that it's so great yeah it always that does feel like a component that's missing from like indie movies or you know it just doesn't feel like anybody it's like they're gonna spend the 30 days shooting it and not do any rehearsals before it's like too expensive and sometimes you don't know people skip that step a lot you know you sometimes you don't know who's gonna be in your movie until six days before you shoot it that happens more time (laughs) than you you even know that happens that happens a lot right now you know that's what's happening they just get and they just get parachuted down like uh who am i yeah exactly Who's exactly. this guy? Who am I? Oh, that sucks. Yeah. 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 So, so. just, um, uh, I, I just have a couple observations in the last 15 or so minutes, like, um, maybe yeah. just to, you know, churn the soil a little bit. Sure. But, like, um, here's another childhood memory of mine uh, is, you know, I, I'm in Long Beach, and uh, not far away was the SLA headquarters shootout and all, and the, and the house burning down. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? A Patty mm. Hearst thing? Yeah, so Patty Hearst was kidnapped, and then she right. became part of the kidnappers, the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA, and the police hunted the SLA members down not far from where this film was made and not far from where I fucking lived. And it was on local television, and it's one of my first memories of my whole life. Wow. Because it was just, it was just on one day, and everyone seemed so concerned. And the only thing on TV... <laughs> Because the TV for me should have been I Love Lucy or like the Flintstones, but it was a house burning down <laughs> wow. in what looked like my neighborhood for like seven hours because it was a huge local thing. So anyway, what I'm saying is I think there's definitely a shadow of the SLA incident that happened in that area. Um, so I wanted to sort of throw that out there uh, because, you know, guess what the SLA did? They robbed banks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, I just want to make that observation. Topical. It was just in the in the air, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And like, um, this is really stupid, and I apologize in advance. But if people are familiar with the film Norma Ray with Sally Field, right? Sally Field. Yep. yep. <laughs> She's a union organizer uh, for like really poor working class people in the South, and it's pretty good. Uh, and it's definitely um, a Raimi film. It's definitely a Raimi film for sure. Oh, interesting. Okay, I oh, mean, yeah, I like definitely. it. I, I fucking Norma Ray. But yeah. what I'm saying is. I kept getting echoes of Norma Ray in, and it's particularly the um, car wash <laughs> yeah. because here's a woman mm-hmm. and a Southern woman in both cases, who's, uh, you know, galvanizing everybody together for a cause and to say no and to move forward. And uh, it's, I'm, I'm going to say something stupid where it's like, I think Norma Ray ripped off Emma May mm-hmm. name everything. <laughs> That's my conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory for the episode. Uh, and it's totally false and stupid. So print the legend. My apologies to everyone in the world. And um, (laughs) maybe I'll tap out with this one, let you guys rock out. But this is the greatest thing I've seen in a long time. But there's a a, a (laughs) B-roll shot of a little kid, you know, at some point in the film going like, yeah, oh, during a fight probably where it's like, beat him up. And I don't know if you saw it. There's a kid with with a fucking welcome home brother Charles t-shirt <laughs> want and also that's like my, yeah. my that's my conspiracy theory evidence that of course he didn't make mma first because yeah the kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the, yeah, yeah you know how would he have a shirt of, of the first of the second that's actually film? the ending of the film it's the it's the end fight sequence is when uh between yes. okay yeah that, that's what it is yeah I, I spotted that too and i was like god that's an amazing t-shirt holy shit that's, that's the awesome. coolest shit ever yeah yeah i love that is it is but, it the uh, main kid it's not the main kid the main little kid in it I don't think, think so. so. I think it's an onlooker. Boy. Yeah. It's yeah. an onlooker boy. Onlooker. B-roll. Yeah, yeah. Like, go get him, sister. That, kind of right. That's awesome. That last shot, you know, took for me, that was like where, where she's like holding the little girl. And you know, she gave a, she gives another little speech at the end, you know, mm-hmm. I can't remember the con- what the content of it, but she gives another little speech at the end. She's crying and, and she hugs that little girl and they're like, come on, Emma, come home with us or whatever, you know? And then she's like looking down at her, and I felt like it was like another message point for Jamal to be like passing on that knowledge, MMA's like uh, knowledge to the next generation, you know, passing that message on to like oh. hopefully as like a dream for the future kind of thing. That's oh. what I took away from that last. Um, Can we? Yeah. Moment. Let's just contextualize the ending just a little bit too, because it's it's pretty powerful shit. 
Um, so the movie, yes. uh, just from where we picked off, or from where we left off, uh, so you have Jesse and Zeke in prison. Emma May gets the money from the car wash and from robbing the bank, gets all the money to get them out of prison, presumably. They come back. It's party time. But then, of course, uh, in a heartbreaking moment, uh, truly, truly heartbreaking moment, um, 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 Emma May discovers Jesse sleeping with another woman, right? And she's, you know, or totally, any other woman, <laughs> any other woman, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and is heartbroken. And that, you know, leads to an incredible, another amazing, Awful. Um, yeah. I mean, amazing performance moment for the actress where she, you know, gives this monologue to him where, of course, it ends with, you know, this is, this could be a viral clip on its own, but where she's like, I'm gonna kick your ass. It's amazing and, and slugs him and then Clowns proceeds him. to to beat his ass down the stairs and then repeatedly punch him in the dick over and over again. And that's when your guy with the welcome home Charles T-shirts <laughs> going, yeah, yes, right. you know, right it's, on yeah, yeah, it's, sure. it's, com- it's completely humiliated. Like he's like yeah. basically naked in the front yard, like uh, being getting his kick, ass beat, getting punched in the dick by over a woman, and over again. which yeah. in macho. You know, in macho world, that's like worse than getting beaten up by a guy. Yeah, and then his friend even looks at him and is like, uh, "Yeah, I don't respect you anymore." Anyway, you know, and it's and like yeah. and then and that's a great moment. But to go to your point, Marcus, I think what was brilliant about that tr- about the choice of the ending or, or or what you're left with out of the movie is to, you know to go right exactly what you're saying. It's not that he ends it on a note of like, "Here's a portrait of a woman scorned." You know, it's more in, of yeah, an yeah. appraisal of her finding her strength, you know, both from herself and in the community. Cause then what you're saying, she, then the community embraces her again at the end. And it's like, you're all good now. And like, you know, so that I think is a great way to end this movie, to bring it up at the end, you know, in a really power empowering sort of way, you mm-hmm. know, and where everybody, know who wa- any, anyone who watches that is like, fuck yes. Like when he, when you see him, you know, like beat his ass in, in the middle of the front lawn the only sort of thing I can equate it to is like the ending of Witchfinder General, you know, when the guy finally okay. takes the axe, you know, takes the axe to no. Vincent Price, you know, and you're you're like with it with every freaking axe strike. You're like right there. You know, it's that same yeah. sort of powerful. But it's interesting. Moment. I, I, I like I like you guys' observation where it's like she's not destroyed by the revenge and, and the vengeance that she takes. Right. She does follows through with it. And gets centered back onto herself and her priorities and going home, which mm-hmm. is like the last part of the last kind of line of the movie. So uh, that's a great uh, grace note to end on instead of like, well, I brought down to the depths of like crass vengeance and in this death spiral with this bad guy and I'm going to be bad to him. Because mm-hmm. that could, you could end on that note, yeah. you know, but it, but it transcends that. Right. There's a part of me that wanted her to be right about him, you know, throughout the whole movie, you know, because yeah. she, like as soon as they meet, she's like super into him and he's kind to her in the early on. But we do see him behind the scenes kind of talking trash about her. But I wanted her to be right about him. And I know. You know, just, uh, he's like in this fucked up situation and like his life is fucked up. You know, I wanted that to be the part of the story that's told. But he's by the end of it, he's just unrepentant and he is cool. a user and an abuser and. You know, so I don't know. So she, I like that she, like the wool is lifted from her eyes and she sees yeah. that she, you know. Well, it's. But I did want her to, in some ways, I wanted her to be right about him and like be like, no, no I know what you mean. He's good deep down, you know. It's, like, it's, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking in the context of the film where it's like, oh, this guy's just not cool. And actually, you know, the pivot is where he's in prison. And I, yeah. I hate that scene. I mean, I don't I hate, hate the that scene. scene. I hate yeah. him in the scene. Where hate him. Like, yeah. 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 Where they're like, where he, he turns. And uh, that should have been the big. Did you bring money? He's like, yeah. He's like, like, like. Did you bring money? Because he's gambling all the money that she's giving him away yes, in prison, exactly. which is well, horrible. That's what he tells her, but he's probably he doing drugs. Right? Yeah, yeah, right, or right, or right, right. Whatever. Yeah. Who knows? Right. Who knows? But yeah, and and and. It, but I, but I do think that why it works, you know, that is there is a naivete there. Again, it's like her coming yeah. from a different whole yeah, world right. and coming into right. this yeah. and 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 yeah. and learning about it and then and then now you know and 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 coming to that realization you know uh which yeah. is heartbreaking yeah. but then her, yeah yeah she well she went out with her first la boyfriend you know and was like that guy sucks yeah, yeah. <laughs> that prison like, moment know, georgia guys or whatever that, that yeah, prison ahead, moment is the moment that we turn on him too i think as the audience completely because yeah. we see that he's totally. manipulating even after he's yelled at her He's manipulated her, and she's behind the scenes. She gives the money to, like, you know, 
uh, Big Daddy to give to her. Is it Big Pop? I can't remember. Anyway, but he, to give to him, and he's like, yeah, I manipulated her into giving me money. That's right. Yeah, awful. Oh, it feels Shut horrible. Up. Yeah. Can I just, um, you know, running, we're losing the time here. It's just like one observation I had is we're kind of looking at these big three uh, films of his, you know. Mm-hmm. They all feature prison as a motif. Not surprising. It's black America. But, um, you know, uh, obviously penitentiary is set in prison, you know. But uh, there's also in Welcome Home, Brother Charles, that amazing, it's a it's a still photograph montage. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. It's, I think it's oh, like yeah. black, black and white, yeah. color tinted, and it's it's such a powerful scene. It's beautiful. It's a work of art, you know? Yeah, it is. And so, and then there's even a little bit of prison in, in MMA, and like, uh, there's, a, there's a nice just little moment where our jerk guy, I forgot his name. What's his name? The bad guy? Jesse. Jesse. Yeah, right? Jesse. <clears throat> Jesse is like grumbling to himself after, you know, having the visit with her and some white dude sitting next to him, like looks over and, and then he's just like, I got enough problem with these fuck ass white people. I don't need you to call me and put all this bullshit on my motherfucking head. Just tell me I'm going to tell you back to yourself. Oh, yeah. Like a nice little, yeah. nice little back and forth of like a <laughs> shitty prison day, day in prison, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, totally. and, he, and he had to leave that in there. That's like, it shows that it has, he has, he has some nice wit. Well, like that didn't have to happen. <clears throat> Just like one, made that little 10 second thing happen. One thing too, I just, I, I want to make sure I got in. I know I've said it in a couple different ways, but I think it, it relates to the ending um, as well too. And a little bit, a little bit about Brother Charles as well. But with the ending, it's like, you know, I, I think it's, it is interesting to see with this whole movie when you step back that, you know, it's, it's, we, we've been saying it this whole hour, this whole fucking hour is that Jama, you know, is subverting the tropes of a black exploitation movie. And I think what's really interesting about that, even right through to the ending, is that he's he wants to give because you know, he wants to empower the community, you know, and and everything comes back to community. And he wants to give his movie, this movie, MMA, a a a different message than a lot of those other films do. You know, wh- whether the other films are cautionary tales or they're or or they're examining the ugliest parts of those community, you know, he was always totally about giving a more positive uplifting message back to the community you know and i think mm-hmm. that that's just really cool to see True. um in, you know, in, in, in different ways yeah. in different ways film, but it's <clears throat> yeah now, i think that, that that's a point that i think that gets us in that i know we all want to talk about but maybe i have like a, a way in is like this that the way that the, the, those elements of black exploitation are in there and i think that allowed the films to be marketed as black exploitation oh. movies Right. Sometimes, right? Like, and um, yeah. maybe even mismarketed. I mean, you guys can speak to this too, but I know that specifically it worked like the way that this movie was marketed impacted me. Like, I thought it was a black exploitation movie for years. I just kind of put it in that. I loved that cinema without digging in too deeply to the history of them, you know, when I was younger as a teenager and stuff. And, sure. Um, and I actually even had a 35 of this print of this movie. Uh, that I bought like in 2006. I think I gave it to the movie geek. I can't remember quite what happened to it, but um, <laughs> I don't have it anymore. But uh, but and I think I even probably Lars might have even introduced me to this film. I think I could just hear Lars saying Jammer Fanak. I could hear his voice saying Jammer Fanak. I could hear <laughs> him saying it. So he might have even turned me on to it. But um, <laughs> I didn't know the history of the LA Rebellion or like didn't know too you know anything about Jamal's like were other works or whatever. I just thought it was sort of a black exploitation movie, but I guess because it has those tropes in there, it's able to be marketed that way. And I'm not sure if, if that was his decision to sometimes like lean on that, or if, if these were like the distributor or whatever, got a hold of these and changed the titles or whatever. I mean, you guys can, well, the title changes were, the title changes were thankfully only in the VHS days. And actually in the last minutes here, I would like to dovetail into how the film in it's after its life, you know, after it was made, excuse me, it's like uh, the titles were always the titles in theatrically. Um, I'm sure there were cruder, uh, ad, there was crude ad art probably once in a while, you know, where it did, did play up. I mean, that happened all the time in all kinds of films. You know, there'd be like these kind of gentle, sort of quiet, strange art films that would get, you know, you know, with a guy with a gun and like it's different ad art from a different movie and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not an uncommon thing that would happen. But, um, I'm sure just whoever distributed just said, like, uh, we've got an angle, let's go with it and let's pump it up. But that was especially the case with the VHS days. We talked earlier that Welcome on Brother Charles was called Soul Vengeance. It's stupid. <laughs> but they decided that was better in, like, 1988 or whatever. And then, of course, MMA really got done dirt 
when it was called Black Sisters Revenge. And that's how I knew it. I rented God. that VHS. That cover. And uh, look at that. I know it's so stupid. But I mean, this is a phenomenon. And we've enjoyed talking about this a lot. And I almost want to do a whole evening on this, you know. Sure. Uh, it. Where it's uh, totally 100% misrepresentation of uh, 70s movies in 80s VHS culture, uh, where, where they would actually, like in that case, hire models, you know, like in 1989 you know, like in Culver City to like do these quick ads, you know, like here's some props yeah. and smoke machine and they're doing things that like that person's not in the film. And uh, the worst one is Ganja and Hess was called Black Vampire and it had like a cartoon art VHS cover art, you know, so it happened. Those so, things really did a number on my head. Like I would think a 70s movie was like a late 80s movie, so I wouldn't rent it or the other way around. You know, it was very confusing. Like uh, it really did screw with me. But I, I, I'm still I, putting the pieces together. Yeah, oh, it's it's a mess, uh, but it's sort of fun in a, in a sick way to to trudge through all that. But what I was going to say in the last minute here, throw to you guys. I got like, I got something too. So go ahead. okay, well, just real quick, I wonder how this film was received. Actually, like I wonder because it isn't delivering. If if you're like half watching this in a triple feature at a drive-in, you know, I wonder if people were like really bored, literally like falling asleep, walking out. Like, I wonder if it did have any kind of impact. I mean, it wasn't a big hit, so there's that. But I yeah. wonder if maybe it sort of touched some viewers in the black community in America. I wonder, I don't know if there's any way to, you know. Well, I think it's definitely now we can say that I think it does have a little bit of a cult appeal now. I think people are, are probably rediscovering it more in the last 10 years than I would imagine at any point in time. You know, so um, I think that's cool. Um, one thing I wanted to just really quickly get in before, if you guys don't mind, I, I, there was one interesting <clears throat> thing about Jama moment in his life that I thought I wanted to just get in. That was pretty interesting is that he himself had, we, I forgot to mention this had also, uh, he was a transplant from, I, uh, he also came from Mississippi and then came to Compton. So he has that connection himself to the character of MMA. And when he got to, when he got to Compton, there was a moment in his life that he that he that he talked used to talk about where he was a teenager and he was hanging out one day with some guy in the wrong kind of crowd and this guy was really talking him into busting into this store to hold it up and to rob it and 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 instead he went to the building next door which was a UCLA building and that's where he started his path to become who we who we, who we became and and inquired in that moment how did to it enroll in college which is uh, like the split the road split like the road through this storefront totally to absolutely so and and and, and what's really what, what what and and just to speak to how he did always give back to the community i mean he un, spent the last decade or so of his life maybe more fighting against the dga spending his own money with lawsuits to get them to hire more black people in hollywood so that's how he spent his days giving back to the community. So I think that's just something also interesting to highlight. Boom. And we are out. <laughs> passed away about 10 years ago. Unfortunately. Yeah, 2012, I think. Yeah, 10 years ago, yeah. yeah still, still with us. Well, that was it. That's a wrap. We did... Yeah. I miss it already. Maybe we'll do Welcome on Brother Charles. Maybe we'll do Penitentiary in the future. Oh, yeah. They're all great. really it's really great, and I just I just uh, implore you if, if no one if if you're watching this, you haven't seen the film. Sorry, we spoiled it, but definitely go out and watch it. It packs a punch. It's amazing. Um, Penitentiary is great. Brother Charles is pretty wild, <laughs> so you'll have a you'll you'll he's a he's a very very interesting filmmaker to get into. He's definitely one fucking hour ready. That's for sure. Um, Absolutely. So, um, all right. Well, that was a blast. I think we should talk a little bit about next week and the road ahead for the show um what did we pick again oh i just gotta think uh, uh oh yes i do i do yes <clears throat> right 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 okay so we're 40 episodes in to the show uh and this will be our first non-english language film so we're, we're finally getting to even though it does have some english in it but we're gonna yeah. get it's a little bit of a cheat but we're we're, we're digging our <laughs> dipping our toes into it but <clears throat> it's a foreign shot in america we, we can't leave america we yeah, ease we into it. Yeah. we gotta ease into it we gotta ease into it we gotta yeah. we gotta ease into it but i mean again i wanted to read i'd go to school 
<laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Subtitles. Just, yeah. Uh, exactly. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> but I'm I'm really excited about this. This is definitely a filmmaker. You could. There's probably about. I don't know, a dozen or so, or maybe more, 20 so films of his you could probably do on this show. So this will be interesting. He's a monster filmmaker with a lot to talk about, but this movie I think is an apropos first choice for us for many reasons. And we are going to do one fucking hour next week on uh, Werner, Werner, Werner Herzog's Strozek. All right, we're doing it. Starring Bruno (laughs) Ed. Yeah. You know. Some Bruno S shit. uh, He's uh, other than Klaus Kinski. That's his. That was his seventies guy. Bruno that was S. his Leo. That was his Leonardo DiCaprio, right? If 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 Klaus is De Niro, this is his Leo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. No, not but, at all. Uh, yeah. No, no. I, I see it okay, good, good, good. Yeah. So we're so, gonna, yeah we're gonna do a, a real a real monster of a filmmaker, and it's like we could just hit a dartboard of his filmography and probably have a great time with anything yeah. <clears throat> but get this one a shot that's yeah. i'll pick the next one maybe just the the dartboard <laughs> that'd be great yeah. i'd love that that'd be a, a great dart- idea herzog <clears throat> dartboard yeah we should have a herzog <laughs> dartboard that's a great wheel idea. of her- wheel of herzog yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh i like a I like a wheel too that's a good idea maybe we'll implore that um yeah, Werner Wheel. Um, all right, so uh, that and that song. actually, actually, you know what? Having a Werner like wheel is very Strozek. You know, like at the end of Strozek would have a Werner wheel. So um, I could see that. For the booths at the carnival. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh shit! That's true. Um, and I just want to tease one other thing before we're out of here. I want to tease the fact that. We're going to be, uh, this will be the last September uh, episode, uh, Strozek, next week. And then everybody get ready for October, which is actually our one-year anniversary month, guys. It's a uh, big uh, one fucking year. <laughs> we made it one fucking year. Oh <clears throat> so <laughs> it's one fucking year. Uh, so, so we uh, just see the same movies over again, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna run it back from Magnolia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but what we are going to be doing is we're going to be spending October, the, the four weeks of October, picking four horror films for October. So uh, get ready for that. We're going to unveil what the, those four films will be hopefully next week so you can get all you know revved up and, and prepared and pre-watched for all the films that we're going to do in October. So horror month for our one fucking year anniversary. Uh, that'll gonna be that's gonna be starting week after next uh, after we do a little Strozek, which I think will be will be great. Then diving into sheer fucking horror right after awesome. that. Yeah, one fucking so, year. Well said. One fucking <laughs> year. Here we go. So, uh, all right, everybody. Well, that was a great uh, chat on MMA. Thanks for joining us on that. Um, and yeah. we will see you again next week. But we can't leave you without your moment of zen. All right, everybody. Take it away. I'll see you later. Have a good rest of your week, everybody. So long. Like I say, it's an honor, it's a pleasure to treat it. Be in the presence of you. You understand what I'm saying? You know what you do. Hollywood sometimes ain't fair to the black screenwriter slash director, but fuck Hollywood. We understand in the hood what it is and what it's going to be. You inspired me to do what I'm doing. Like I say, if it wasn't for y'all, it wouldn't be no Snoop Dogg. I was inspired as a kid when my mommy used to take me to the drive-ins to go see these movies and whatnot. And I used to always see the name like, who the fuck is, is Jamal Fanak? But we couldn't, we couldn't say it right because nobody would give us no, you know, no, no information on you. Just, we would just see your movies and we'd be like, man, he dope, he good. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. <laughs> Wicked, man. <laughs>